Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. have a mass incarceration problem in America, with entire industries created to lock people up, keep them locked up, and make it difficult or impossible for many of the people they catch in their cycle to break free. My guest this week learned this firsthand, Kerry Blakinger. Kerry is a Texas-based journalist and the author of the new book, Corrections in Ink, a memoir tracing her path from figure skating to heroin addiction to prison and finally to life as an investigative reporter covering mass incarceration for the Marshall Project. The U.S. locks more people up than any other country. More than 2 million Americans are in jails or prisons here. And more than 200,000 of those prisoners are female. Nearly 30% of all incarcerated women worldwide are in the United States. And the number of women in U.S. prisons has risen more than 700% in the last 40 years. I've been in a number of prisons, give or take 10 prisons. Uh, I served federal, county, and state time. And there wasn't one prison I was ever in that didn't have heroin all over the prison. Here on the outside, it is a common belief that solitary confinement is only for the most hardened inmates, but not so. In some prisons, breaking basic rules or being caught with contraband will earn a prisoner time in the hole. I'm Carrie Blakinger, and I'm passionate about exposing what really goes on in prison. Sorry, not sorry. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. And I want to get into your book. But first, I'm wondering if you can take us back to who you were before the events that led to your arrest. Who were you as a teenager and a child? And what did you aspire to be? Growing up, I was a competitive figure skater, which probably seems unlikely to people who know me now as a reporter who covers prisons. But I skated pairs, which is where the guy throws you around and looks all dangerous and shit. And we were good. We competed at nationals twice. And it was sort of my whole life. I would leave school at 10 or 11 every day and I'd be at the rink training until five or six. And it was sort of my whole social circle. It was my whole vision for what my future would be. I mean, it was really my whole identity at a pretty young age. Obviously, there's some eating disorders and depression that are wrapped up in that because it's a pretty intense sport. I think youth athletes are under a lot of stress all of the time. If they excel at whatever their sport is, I think it could be really difficult for them. I wasn't a youth athlete, but I started working 
and dedicating my life to that work at a really young age too. And it's crazy how imbalanced it is. And you're right, that becomes your entire being. And there's a part that's like, who am I if this were to end? And you ended up at Cornell. Tell us about that and how that happened. Well, there's a few steps between skating and Cornell. I, um, my pair partner decided to branch out and find a different partner. This was after the second year that we competed at nationals together. There's so many more girls and guys that he could find a partner the next day. For me, it could be like weeks or months. And I guess you probably would relate to this as well. This is something where there's an age limit. Like you're being told from a young age that you're getting a little too old for whatever. When I was young, I remember there was a 23-year-old skater that was referred to as the old lady. And that's wild to think back on now, but it meant that at 17, when I was looking at the possibility of not having any partner for a season and having to take a season off, that this seemed like the end of my world. And obviously looking back now as an adult, that was not the case. At the time, it certainly felt that way. And I, I just fell apart. I was 17. My parents suggested that I go to Harvard Summer School, which I know is a very bougie suggestion for how to deal with, we think our kid is really depressed, but you know, I did. And I, it ended up meaning that was the first time that I had no supervision at all at the same time that I was already starting to fall apart. And I ended up getting a little bit into drugs there, but it was more after I got back that I fell apart pretty quickly and ended up spending most of my senior year of high school living on the streets and doing sex work and shooting heroin. And off and on for the next nine years, I was doing a lot of drugs and selling drugs to support my habit. And sometimes I was doing some college. I started at Rutgers and then transferred to Cornell. And I did okay in school, even though I was doing drugs and it wasn't apparent on paper that I was addicted Mm. to heroin because I hadn't, I didn't have any rests. There was nothing that made it clear how bad things were going. When they send their child, their son, their daughter away to college and haven't seen them in a while. And then all of a sudden, their son or daughter comes back for a visit in the summer or after a break. And the parents notice that something is just off. Something isn't right. And usually when a parent has that initial gut feeling that something's off, they're usually right. So do you accredit that to being brilliant, being able to manipulate? How are you able to function and still have this other secret world? Like, how did you make them all intersect? Part of it was like getting really good at creative excuses for why I needed extensions on papers. But part of it was just because I was so convinced that if I could manage to stay in school, then I wasn't too far gone. That was my measuring stick. There was some hope, maybe. So yeah, I was the person that was, you know, shooting up and then writing English papers. And are you comfortable talking about heroin? I mean, I did just write a book. I just don't want to be hurtful to your being. But there's a step in, I think, heroin use that... I feel like once you cross the line to shooting up, there's got to be an element of almost, here we are. I did this, I crossed that line, and there's no turning back now. To me, just knowing how the human mind works and knowing how 
heroin and shooting up heroin in particular is very ritualistic. So I think I'm just fascinated by like that first moment where you're like, you know what, snorting this or smoking this is not enough. I'm going to shoot this into my veins. So I was in such a self-destructive place that I went to that very quickly. This was not some sort of long process of, you know, just like frog in the boiling water type situation. I might have smoked pot a couple of times and then did ecstasy and then did heroin. Like there wasn't some long progression here. So this was more about me self-destructing. I was trying to die without actually killing myself. Tell my listeners about your arrest. What happened? Yeah. So in 2010, I mean, by that point, I'd been using off and on for about nine years. And in 2010, I was walking down the street with a small Tupperware container of heroin and encountered a cop. Someone had called the police for a suspicious person and they saw me and I saw the cop. I was pretty high. I saw the cop and I threw the drugs under the nearest car and someone saw me do that and retrieved them and gave them to the cop. And I was like, no, he wouldn't have known. But I was clearly acting like the suspicious person and got arrested and booked into the county jail. I was really lucky about the timing of that because I got arrested in 2010, which was right after. New York had finished repealing the Rockefeller laws. For listeners who don't know, the Rockefeller laws were some of the most notoriously draconian three strikes laws from the war on drugs era. And in New York, you could get 15 to life for first time nonviolent drug offenses in some scenarios. And had I been sentenced under the old law, I could have gotten 15 to life. Instead, I ended up getting two and a half years. In 1973, New York State enacted the notorious Rockefeller drug laws. The purpose, they said, was to control the drug problem that ravaged New York. At the time, the Rockefeller drug laws were the toughest drug laws in the country. They funneled thousands of New Yorkers into prisons, but there was no measurable decrease in overall crime. Instead, the Rockefeller drug laws created a devastating legacy introducing an era of draconian mandatory minimum sentencing that contributed greatly to America's current mass incarceration crisis. I mean, there's a lot of other factors at play there, you know, race privilege and dumb luck of geography of having been arrested in a progressive county instead of a conservative one. Timing was also an incredible amount of dumb luck there. And just to fill our listeners in, what was that first interaction with police like for you? Were you like, oh, sh- oh shit, here we go, like game on? I was, I was really high, so it was confusing, honestly. There's so many things about an arrest and a booking process that you get from TV, but that isn't necessarily like how it works. I think in TV, it seems as if it all makes sense. They telegraph what's coming next in the process. When you're actually going through it, no one's telling you what's coming next. You don't know how to get a lawyer or will one just appear. You don't know when you get your phone call or how long you're going to be waiting in this holding cell. Or I didn't even know if my charges were serious. I had no understanding of how the legal system would work broadly. But also, I think a lot of people don't know off the top of their heads what amount of what substance equates to what charge and will you get bail. 
that's not something that comes across when you're watching people get arrested. But as I was actually going through it, it was just deeply confusing. And I don't think I realized how much I didn't know until much later when I became a reporter and started covering criminal justice and actually understood the system. So you were an addict and you were in prison and you'd think that was the last place where someone could recover somewhat from their addictions. I mean, I usually say that I stayed sober in spite of prison, not because of it. The reality is that there are drugs in jails and prisons and a lot of people view jails and prisons as a place that at the very least people can go and sober up. But that is not the reality. In prison, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside. I chose not to, but it was there. And I think that's something that a lot of people would be surprised by. How are women treated in prison? The whole prison system is essentially made with men in mind. The majority of staff are male. The vast majority of incarcerated people are male. And it ends up being that there are a lot more resources that go to the male facilities. Now, to be clear, people are treated quite badly in both. But in many states, You'll see that men will get more of the vocational programs or more of the college opportunities. And the other thing about women's incarceration is that women coming with such high rates of sexual trauma. So many women who end up in jail and prison have been raped. I mean, obviously, that's true of people who have not been in jail and prison, but it's specifically true of women who end up in jail and prison. The sexual abuse that goes on there is ungodly. Stephanie Hibbett spent a year locked up at the Julia Tutwater prison in Alabama, a place where female inmates say they're routinely raped, sexually assaulted, and harassed by male guards. And for Stephanie, it didn't stop with the guards. She describes one time when she was harassed by a sergeant. He kissed me. Um, I pushed him away. Um, He was fired. He did lose his job. Uh, But for the wrong reasons, I'm it was put in his paperwork that he just touched me on the backside and gave me a piece of peppermint. And I think inherently being in this environment where you're quite likely going to have men with power yelling at you and potentially walking in on you naked or whatever, there's all of these ways in which the basics of prison can be specifically traumatizing to survivors of sexual trauma. There's a story in your book about a new sheriff being elected and how that affected the way your prison was administered. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. When I was in jail, a few days after I got there, I guess a couple weeks after I got there, a new sheriff took over because sheriffs, which run county jails, are elected officials. But that means that they have a lot of control over a lot of the basics of what money is spent on and what the rules are and how jails are going to be run. So one of the things that he did to, I don't know, show everyone there's a new sheriff in town, as it were, was immediately send 
dogs through all the cell blocks, like tearing up everybody's shit and just throwing all your belongings everywhere. And they didn't find any drugs. It was just, I don't know, display of power. But they also did some other things like took away vegetarian meals. You know, I know that there are listeners that are going to be like, oh, they don't need people who are incarcerated don't deserve their choice of meal. But this was actually a pretty easy thing to do since it's inmates that are making the food. And of course, this was a county jail. So people are actually not guilty yet. And he took away that. At one point under his administration, they also stopped administering Suboxone, which is a medication that is used to help deal with opioid withdrawal. And then one of the things that also affected me was I had, after I got arrested, I had, I'd had a pretty irregular cycle before my arrest. And then when I got arrested, I wasn't on drugs and I was around all these other women and I had my period for six weeks straight. And I asked the nurse if there was anything she could do about it. And she put me on birth control to try to regulate it. And I did the depot shot. It worked great for 90 days. And then by the time that I was due for another one, that nurse was gone. And she said, oh no, this jail doesn't do that. We don't give birth control shots. Like, I don't know what that was. So I ended up having my period for like five or six months straight after that. This sort of goes to show both the difficulties that women have when they're locked up and also the ways in which people in charge can make these sort of arbitrary decisions that can change day-to-day life so much. And we've just seen a progressive district attorney recalled in San Francisco because the public just decided it wanted to be tough on crime. What happens to incarcerated people when public opinion shifts and changes who runs the criminal justice system? Are there other examples? Even the Rockefeller laws that I mentioned, this was a product of tough on crime legislation. This is when Rockefeller was believed to be angling for, I think, a presidential bid at that point and was coming up with tough on crime laws. But we also see this when we look at Clinton era drug policies. These are things that are elected officials pushing through laws that end up vastly changing the system. And obviously, on a more local level, when you're talking about district attorneys, it can make a huge difference in terms of what sorts of sentences they're offering, what sorts of plea deals they're offering. Most cases are resolved through a plea deal. And if you have a more progressive DA, they might decide to not prosecute certain types of cases, and they might decide to offer different amounts of time for plea deals. We need to reserve our justice system for real public safety challenges. In this memo to his staff, Bragg said offenses like low-level drug deals, prostitution, and fare evasion will no longer be prosecuted. And that's not all. Bragg also wants lesser charges for some lower-level crimes, including some robberies. It can make a huge difference just in terms of how much time people are doing and what offenses are actually getting prosecuted. I was thinking about doing this interview with you today, and I thought about how one of the things that just strikes me is that women in prison have been a particular focus of entertainment often aimed for or at men. There's this cliche, like sexualization, this kind of sick fantasy of helpless women unable to say no or who are engaging in sex with each other for the gratification of men. And there's a whole slew of reality shows that pretend to give a real inside look at the jails, but the shows are more like Real Housewives of the Cell Block, right? They're not, it's not real. 
What does it say about us that we use women prisoners in these ways? It doesn't surprise me at all, though, that we do, because I think one of the most telling things is is actually not specific to women, but does apply in that context. Some is those drop the soap jokes. Like, okay, I started doing TikToks recently about prison and I get so many people in the comments making snide comments about what's it like if you drop the soap in women's prison. And I responded to some of them being like, you don't pick it up, but not because you're going to get raped. You don't pick it up because the floor is gross and the soap's shitty. So why bother? Those jokes are fundamentally rape jokes. They end up being misogynist and homophobic. And the fact that they're still so prevalent in 2022 makes it also not surprising that we're completely comfortable with making these jokes about women prisoners that you wouldn't, you would know, many people would know are not okay to make about people who are not in prison. Like everyone gets that like rape jokes are not okay. I don't know that everybody gets that. I really don't know that everybody gets that. But I don't know that they connect that sort of humanity to people who are in prison. And you're right. The people that make those jokes are just bad people or have bad people around them that aren't willing to say, dude, like that's inappropriate. I also think with women in particular, I think it highlights how we just don't take women's incarceration seriously. Like prison is traumatizing and even the best case scenario. and. I don't think that people take women's incarceration seriously as if it's just a timeout. Whereas I think people commonly understand the violence and some of the problems that exist in men's prisons. And those same problems don't necessarily exist in the same degrees in women's prisons, but there are other problems that are also quite bad. I think that's part of what that sort of trope about women just having sex with each other and it's some bad 70s porn. That's part of what that comes from, is this idea that it's not actually that bad. It's just fun and some orgy. There's a part of your book that talks about receiving treatment for hepatitis. I'm going to read a little bit. About a week after getting a shot, you start to have symptoms that you are not sure if you're supposed to be having as like side effects or not. And you write, when you're in prison, You can't go get a second opinion. You can only take the word of a doctor who works for the same system that didn't want to treat you in the first place. That's so powerful. Talk to me about healthcare and really consent in prison. How does it work? Healthcare is so hard to get in so many varieties of basic care that I think you might assume people get whether it's dental care or hep C treatment, for instance, I had to fight for several months to be able to get hep C treated. And in terms of like consent, I feel like it's so, I know that there are times when there's issues about whether a person wants to consent to the treatment that the prison wants to give them. But more often, consent isn't even the issue because you can't even get the treatment to begin with. Right. You talk about one of your proudest moments came in this arena when it comes to dentures. Tell us about that. After I got out of prison and went on to become a reporter who covers prisons, I discovered that the Texas prison system was not giving people dentures, which was shocking to me because right at a time in New York, you know, the dental care was spotty, but people got dentured. I was shocked to see that Texas didn't do that. I think I feel real 
plants that I'm being able to get teeth that uh, make me feel better, you know, and just go in and eat with the rest of the people and eat what they eat. Even I can smile better, you know, so I feel all right. So I started investigating, and for about 11 months, I tracked down people who had no teeth and couldn't get dentures. I tracked down policies and data and collected letters and grievances and all this evidence to show what was going on. And it turned out that the prison system actually just admitted to a lot of it. Like I spent all this time investigating things they just admitted. But it turns out they were taking, instead of giving people teeth, they would take the mess hall tray. And after I wrote about that, then the state decided to, under pressure from one particular state senator, John Whitmire, the state decided to buy a 3D printer and start 3D printing teeth. Wow. I have to talk to you about the business of prisons because it's really heartbreaking. You live in Texas now, which, like many states, makes liberal use of for-profit prisons. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about just the prison industry and the related industries like for-profit parole administrators, bail bondsmen, and so much more that exist around prisons. So first of all, I think that although the profit motives are so concerning in so many realms of this, I think that people all the time, when I write about a story about something terrible happening in a prison, people will respond, you know, I'll tweet it and people will respond, oh, for-profit prisons are so bad. But I think it's so important to understand that the majority of prisons in this country are not for-profit. And it's easy to understand why the profit part of it makes it particularly appalling because you see there's the motive for things to be so bad. But things are quite bad, even when profit isn't at issue. But the other piece of this, aside from the actual for-profit prisons, which are clearly troubling, and bail bondsmen, which seem to not actually help public safety, which is, I don't know, what you expect the criminal justice system to do. But if all you're doing is determining if someone has enough money to get out, doesn't seem like that's helping public safety. Aside from those things, I think the less broadly talked about things are the really predatory practices by some of the phone companies and some of the tablet companies and commissary, all these things that prisoners can get. The prices are so jacked up. It was so expensive to call home when I was locked up, and it still is. And this is particularly troubling because this is how you help minimize recidivism is you allow people to stay in touch with their families. Moms need to talk to their kids, need to have the connections, to the free world so that they can thrive when they get back there, because most prisoners will one day get out. And I think people just assume that making phone calls is free in prison. No, it was like a dollar a minute or more. You served a little less than two years. What was life like when you got out? It's funny how much things change in just two years, because the two years that I was in was actually the time that most people went from flip phones to smartphones. So like just at a bare minimum, I mean, this was obviously not the biggest thing about reentry, but just at a bare minimum, like I come out of prison, I get in the car, 
And I wanted to go visit the people who had been watching my dog for two years. And I literally didn't know how to use the smartphone. I kept forgetting also that I needed to leave the phone on. I kept being used to a wall phone where you hang it up. So I would just turn the phone all the way off. But I didn't do that much time. I did it like a little under two years. There's so many people I know that did a decade or more. And all of the ways in which society changes in that amount of time just, I think, makes it so hard to come back. Yeah. I mean, when you think about just how drastically things have changed from pre-pandemic to now, it's a completely different world, completely different world. And now you're a journalist with the Marshall Project and you focus on issues related to prisons and prisoners. Does it feel like reliving trauma? Yeah, it totally is. It also means, though, that when I write a story that has a positive impact, or when I write a story that someone is just very grateful to have out there, I think it resonates. It resonates a lot more deeply because I understand where they are and how much this matters. Yeah. And I've got to imagine that there's a sense of like being able to, to use your experience means that the experience meant something and means something to future generations, means something to families you don't even know. And I would think that would feel like, not that I'm glamorizing it at all, but I would feel like that's a certain amount of pride and accomplishment because things have come full circle for you. And the book is just really great. What do you think is the most critical thing as a society that we need to change in the way that we relate to incarceration and incarcerated people? I think that we need to better understand the extent to which prisons do not actually improve public safety. But how do we do that? How do we shift that narrative? Obviously, you're doing the work. So much of it is about framing the conversation, right? It's about instead of framing it about what do prisoners deserve and what sort of treatment do they deserve, about who will improve public safety when they get out. I think it's easier to see that we shouldn't damage people if we're going to release them because that doesn't help public safety. And that hasn't been the way the conversation has been framed. So how do you change that? I don't know. For me, I just keep writing about it. (laughs) My final question is what gives you hope? Oh, wow. What gives me hope? I am a queer female covering prisons in Texas. It's pretty dark here. (laughs) But, you know, every so often there are these moments when the system responds in ways that you don't expect you know, deciding to start making teeth or the prison that houses death row, let some of the guys start a radio station on the unit. And they found that deeply meaningful. And I think that there are these glimmers of something better and they're so hard to find and there's not enough of them, but I try to cling to those. And I try to cling to the feedback I hear from the people I write about when they write me letters and they tell me how much it meant to have their story out there. Like these are the things that give me hope on a day-to-day basis. Well, Carrie Blakinger, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. This famous quote by Dostoevsky reminds us that to truly understand the progression of humanity, we should open our eyes to see how we treat some of the most unsympathetic characters in our world. 
How we choose to control, house, supervise, and treat inmates says a tremendous amount about us as a society. And while I sincerely agree with this idea, I personally think it doesn't go far enough. Some inmates are more vulnerable than others and more marginalized. And because we live in a world that implicitly favors some groups over others, majorities over minorities, masculinities over femininities, abilities over disabilities, in order to know the progression of humanity, we shouldn't enter just any prison, we should enter a women's prison. We should never profit from prisons. Let me say that again for the people who really need to hear it. We should never, ever profit from prisons. Depriving a member of our society of their freedom is a solemn and sacred responsibility, which should be a burden, not a balance sheet. And yet, far too often, we've abdicated our responsibility and handed off our criminal justice system to corporations who have a vested interest making sure as many people are jailed as possible, keeping them there for as long as possible, and making sure they come back if at all possible. It's sick, it's dangerous, and it's anti-American. Here's a quote from the Prison Policy Initiative that should chill you right to your soul. Not only does the U.S., have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Every single U.S. state incarcerates more people per capita than virtually any independent democracy on earth. To be sure, states like New York and Massachusetts appear progressive in their incarceration rates compared to states like Louisiana. But compared to the rest of the world... Every U.S. state relies too heavily on prisons and jails to respond to crime. In fact, 34 states lock up a higher percentage of their population than the next closed country. El Salvador. And we call ourselves the land of the free? I don't think so. This is a problem which so disproportionately affects people of color, the poor, and the mentally ill. And we want to make money off of that? Come on. This can't be who we are. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.